You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population. Helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 25. This week I was joined by Danny Lennon, who is a well-known and respected educator in the field of nutrition and the founder of Sigma Nutrition. I have been a huge fan of Danny's work for many years, especially his very own podcast, the ever so popular Sigma Nutrition Radio, in which to this day I'm very much a regular listener. So it was great to actually interview someone that I myself have listened to very often and learned a lot from as well. Danny has a master's in nutritional sciences and has worked as a performance nutritionist with a wide variety of clients, ranging from mixed martial artists to boxers. In today's episode, we spoke about rapid fat loss. We delved deep into calorie deficits. We touched upon some of the misconceptions about aggressive dieting, such as their impact on muscle loss, weight regain and dietary adherence and much, much more. This was a really great discussion with Danny. He's a wealth of knowledge and due to his vast experience doing podcasts himself, I found that he had a great ability to be able to relay the science in such an easy and understandable fashion. Not just that, but I think the listeners will like Danny's deep, calming Irish accent much more than they do mine. So without further ado, this is episode number 25 of the Fat Fix podcast, Rapid Fat Loss, featuring Danny Lennon. Hi, Danny. David, how are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome on to the Fat Fix podcast. It's a great pleasure to get you on the show, considering that I'm an avid listener of your podcast, Sigma Nutrition. Uh, Very kind of you to say, and hopefully we can give people some good information today. Yeah, I was just going to say before we hopped on that I was listening to your podcast for, how long have you been doing it for now? Many years. I remember listening when I was in Australia, when I was doing my regional work, and it was something that I was listening to your voice every day, learning loads of stuff. Oh, that that's awesome. Yeah, it's been going about five and a half years now. So April 2014 was the first episode. And uh, so, yeah, about a bit over five and a half years now. So, yeah, that's real pretty vet- cool. Real veteran to the game. I um, hope I <laughs> live up to some good expectations interviewing you. I bet it feels strange for yourself being on the other end of this. It 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 sometimes it does, but I enjoy it. You know, I I enjoy talking about just nutrition anyway. And so, if someone is kind enough to care about my opinion on things, then that's great for me. So uh, I'll enjoy it. I know a lot of people in the fitness industry, Danny, are very much aware of your work and what you do. But like I said before, we jumped on the call. Most of my listeners are general population. So for those of them who may not be familiar with yourself, do you want to just give them a brief introduction on who you are and what you do sure so i'm danny lennon i'm a founder of a company called sigma nutrition and over the past six or so years the aim has been to put out 
educational information related to evidence-based nutrition and health. So other areas outside of nutrition like sleep and activity and lifestyle, but mainly it's been done through the lens of nutrition uh, because that's my own background. I have a master's degree in nutritional sciences and an undergraduate degree in biology and physics. And uh, the company has a kind of educational side which like i said includes media like our podcast which is what we're most well known for as well as uh, i speak at a fair amount of conferences uh, thankfully which i'm very grateful for i uh, do quite a lot of online seminars uh, we have articles and we have a few other projects coming soon and then on the other side we also have a online coaching aspect to uh, the company where we have a group of four coaches who work with many different uh, people we have all the way from professional MMA fighters boxers we work with a lot of power lifters all the way up to people looking just to improve their health through nutrition and so we have those two uh, balancing sides of the business and I think they work pretty well together because that overlap allows me to spend a lot of my time reading research and looking at what's in the science but also a lot of it gets tested because our coaches are going away and using some of this stuff with the people we we look at so that's a, a bit about me but I'm happy to get into any specifics or details if you wish uh, but yeah that's a good overview I'd say yeah that's um I know recently you went to do some work at the UFC and I think it kind of ties nicely into what we're going to speak about today because I'm sure you did a lot of research into weight cutting for the fighters and things like that and going into a rabbit hole with all that and it, obviously today we're going to be speaking about calorie deficits and aggressive calorie deficits more so like rapid fat loss realms of things but I think before we delve deep into aggressive calorie deficits and how we can set them up and practical recommendations Danny I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the word calorie deficit, especially being on Instagram. It seems something that every personal trainer and his dog are talking about, albeit it's helpful information, but not necessarily people understand what people are saying. And it'd be great for a delve deep into how you can explain that in layman's terms to my listeners. Sure. So I think the most basic principle first to understand is when we're talking about calorie balance or energy balance, the, the, the two terms that you'll see, we're just looking at the trade-off of calories coming in. So that's the calories that we consume via food and then the calories going out or the energy we burn up and expend. Now, the energy expenditure is a bit more complicated because there's a few things that would contribute to the calories we burn each day. So one, we burn a certain amount of calories just from existing and being alive, just for our organs to stay functioning. So we have a certain uh, metabolic rate that we keep and expend just through, like we say, being alive. On top of that, we use energy to move around slight movements throughout the day. Uh, that contributes some energy expenditure. And then, of course, doing activity and exercising contributes to the energy expenditure piece as well. And so when we talk about the term calorie deficit, a calorie deficit is simply when the expenditure or how much calories we're burning is more than the calories coming in or the energy coming in. And on the flip side, then a calorie surplus would be when there's more calories coming in than is going out. And then a calorie balance is when the two of them match up. Now, why calorie deficits get talked about quite a lot is because probably one of the most common goals a lot of people have when they first come to a coach or they start in the gym is they would like to lose some body fat. And we know that in order to lose body fat, the 
one of the uh, primary things from a physiological perspective that we need to occur is for that person to be in a calorie deficit. So there needs to be a shortfall in energy. So in other words, there just be, needs to be more calories being expended than coming in in order for us to actually use up the calories we have stored as fat and to, to burn that up. So the most simple way to think of a calorie deficit is when our calorie expenditure or energy expenditure is higher than that coming in. Now, there's, there's a few pieces of nuance that is why it's not so simple. So in terms of how it relates to fat loss, yes, in order for fat loss to occur over a period of time, a calorie deficit is the most important thing to have. So in other words, you could do whatever you want in terms of the types of foods, but if you are just eating way too many calories, let's say you're in a calorie surplus, you're not going to be losing body fat. However, that shouldn't be confused with me saying that calories are the only thing that matter, that they're the only thing that contribute to our body composition. So for example, we know that the different amounts of macronutrients we have are important. So you could eat the same amount of calories, but if you have very little protein in your diet versus a lot of protein in your diet, you're going to see changes in your body composition that are slightly different. So we shouldn't take it as a direct measure of how much body fat you are going to gain or lose based on if you're in a calorie deficit or surplus, but it's a good proxy measure that if we're doing everything else right, like you are, let's say, doing some training, you're eating an adequate amount of protein, your overall food is relatively decent, then putting yourself in a calorie deficit is the way we're going to predict that you're going to be uh, losing body fat over time, or at least you should be. And when we talk about an aggressive calorie deficit, which is what we're getting to today, that just simply means a bigger calorie deficit. So in other words, an aggressive calorie deficit or aggressive dieting is just where we have a bigger deficit so that the rate of weight loss is going to be faster and therefore your weight is going to come down at a faster rate and uh, it'll be a shorter period of dieting. And we can explore some of that, but I think that's a good overview of what we're referring to by this term, calorie deficit and calorie balance. Yeah, that's great, Danny. I think a lot of people do want to obviously lose weight very fast and that's kind of what we're going to get into today. And there does seem to be a lot of worries and concerns regarding that. And I, for myself, can hold my hands up and I'm sure that you agree and you maybe have done this yourself that as a whole, we do probably say to people a slow and sustainable fat loss is probably recommended for a lot of people. Obviously, it's all individual um, dependent in that sense. But people seem to be quite scared and have the misconceptions of assumptions, should I say, of muscle loss when you go too aggressive in a calorie deficit or worry too much about weight regain. Can we just go over some of the kind of them assumptions and maybe some studies that you may have read yourself and gone into in terms of that this is not necessarily the case when it comes down to aggressive calorie deficits? Sure. So yeah, I, I would agree with your original premises that on average, when we're speaking to a large number of people, in most cases, it's probably reasonable to say that we should aim at a relatively moderate rate uh, of weight loss. And there's some reasons we can discuss about that. However, the fear that some people promote around going faster without weight loss or dieting on lower calories than a certain amount um, is based on, like you say, those two primary concerns that some people take to be true that may necessarily not be. So that first one is that if you 
are in a larger calorie deficit. So in other words, you're on lower uh, calories or your expenditure is super high. So a bigger calorie deficit and therefore losing weight faster. That that means you are guaranteeing that you're going to be losing uh, a lot of muscle. Now, what we know in terms of muscle, uh, muscle protein balance, and also just the preservation of lean muscle mass is that depends on what stimulus is being placed on the muscle of how likely that muscle is going to be lost. So sure, if you take someone and let's say we cut their calories in half and we are not really looking at what uh, foods they're consuming and they're not really doing any exercise, they'll probably lose a considerable amount of muscle and or lean body mass as they are losing weight. However, if we set things up right, we can probably mitigate a lot if not all of that uh, muscle loss. So the primary stimulus for holding on to muscle mass is going to be from resistance training. So lifting weights or even uh, other types of resistance training it will be a potent stimulus to, for your body to hold on to that muscle. Plus, then if we combine that with a relatively high protein intake, and then we can get into some of the specifics like having protein split across, let's say three or more high protein meals across the day, that in combination with uh, resistance training is probably going to mitigate, like I said, a lot, if not nearly all of the uh, muscle loss a lot of people may expect to see during an aggressive deficit. And so to give one example, um, and again, as with everything in nutrition, the, the context of a specific study matters. So uh, there was one study that came out of Stu Phillips's lab at McMaster, lead author, and that was uh, Tom Longland. And they looked at some college-age guys that did a four-week study, and they placed them in a very large calorie deficit. So I think it was a 40% calorie deficit. And over the course of that trial, they had a, a low, lowish protein and a high protein group, and they were doing resistance training. Um, now, the group that was on the high protein diet and doing resistance training, not only did they not lose muscle in that 40% calorie deficit, they actually saw an increase in muscle mass. Now, I should note that there's a, a very specific reason. And like I said, the context for a study matters. These were athletes who had just came back from the off season. So they'd probably been detrained. So they hadn't been lifting for a considerable period of time and had probably lost some muscle during the off season from lack of being in the gym. And so when they came back and then did this four week training uh, study, they were back lifting again. And so therefore you regain muscle a lot quicker if you've been detrained and lost it previously. And that's one thing that will be really important that we'll probably revisit later in this uh, conversation is that if you've previously had some muscle, lost some, to regain it happens a lot quicker than building the muscle in the first place. So that was happening in this study. But one thing it does illustrate is that it's certainly possible to not lose muscle even in a big deficit for certain people. And, and there's certain groups that are more likely to do that than others. Uh, we also see this in pretty much like a ton of different studies where we see body recomposition. So we see people that lose body fat and gain some muscle mass in the same period of time. So over the same, let's say, eight-week study or whatever. This happens relatively routinely. Like There's a lot of studies that you can look at where this happens. And it's usually when people are placed in, again, resistance training, they're eating enough protein, um, and they're eating a amount of calories that puts them into a, a slight deficit. So not a large deficit in this case, but at least shows us that we can get this recomposition effect. So I think, first of all, we need to challenge the idea that 
you'll always lose lots of muscle when you go in a large deficit. We know there are things you can do to prevent that. And like I said, those two big ones that we would focus on is resistance training and then a high protein intake. And ideally that distributed across, let's say three high protein meals uh, or more across the day. So that would um, account for, I think some of the does, are you always going to lose a large deficit? And and I'm sure later on we might um, get into the concept of does that even matter anyway? Because it's something I think is an interesting thing to think about, but that's on the um, deficit and muscle loss perspective. I think a lot of people get the mix the two up when we, when people talk about aggressive calorie deficits and aggressive diets in general, a lot of people seem to combine a, a fad diet with aggressive diets and they're not necessarily the same thing. So if someone, you could have them having skinny coffee and boom bod rather than just having low caloric restriction, which is what we're talking about today. And we shouldn't really tarnish them with the same brush. And I think that's what a lot of people do who do have these worries about losing muscle mass potentially and weight regain is because of it's not the aggressiveness necessarily of the diet it's the diet kind of tool that they've used in the first place if that makes sense yeah absolutely and i think there's some reasons why they should quite rightly be aware of that of a lot of fad diets that are either crash diets or certain detox diets where people are eating almost no calories um there are a lot of uh, bad things that can occur from that. So people should be wary. The other thing to be aware of is this idea that um, it's problematic because it's not a sustainable diet. And I think two things I usually say to people. One is that really any diet that is a fat loss diet, i.e. where you are losing uh, body fat from week to week, therefore that means you are under eating, you're eating less than your body needs. That in itself is unsustainable. You don't want to sustain that forever, right? That's not the goal. It's done for a specific period of time. And that's why we'd ideally break that up into different phases. And then particularly when we talk about a aggressive calorie deficit or rapid fat loss, what we're really trying to do is do this for a much shorter period of time than we would normally diet. It's purposely not sustainable because we're not going to sustain it for a long period of time. So there's a difference between a sustainable diet strategy and sustainable results. And so if we're thinking about how could a aggressive diet fit into a long-term sustainable set of results, well, it would mean that we use it at a specific short period of time, let's say a number of weeks to get a certain result and then transition to a different type of dietary approach or a different number of calories. Um, and then we would be able to sustain the progress on that. So we got some benefit from it. We have a sustainable result in terms of that, that weight loss over a long period of time, but we're only using this strategy at a very focused short period of time. And that's the thing to bear in mind that yes, it's unsustainable, but it's purposely like that. It's only, we're only doing it for a, a set number of weeks and not a thing that everyone should be doing these aggressive diets for long periods of time. That's certainly uh, contraindicated for sure. It's a good way to think of it and saying, yeah, it isn't sustainable. All diets aren't sustainable as such because they are kind of a threat to the body in terms of energy mm-hmm. expenditure and uh, energy in and things like that. So it's a good way to kind of frame that for a lot of people to understand that it, this isn't forever. It's not saying you're going to be constantly go, go, go with your diet. And that's unfortunately how a lot of people set up their diets. They set up these aggressive calorie deficits, albeit whatever method they 
try to use and they have the mentality of they've got to do this for one year for example and, and, and that's when they kind of fall off the wagon isn't it but just because they don't necessarily have a short-term aggressive mentality and then how do they transition out of that which I'm sure will obviously cover down the line in terms of weight regain Danny because I know a lot of people will be worried about this because we know that a lot of people struggle with weight maintenance when people do go on diets the statistics are quite high in terms of people regaining the weight again but yeah going back to what i just said about what approach did they take for that to happen so if someone's been on a fad diet yo-yo diet obviously they're not going to be able to sustain being on that diet for a certain amount of time and then as soon as they go back to eat normal food that's when things change but if you adopt a aggressive calorie deficit by eating proper foods and things like that there is actually research to show that weight regain isn't as probably as bad as what people may think mm. yeah so i think there's there's a number of studies that, that look at this one that comes to mind that i've talked about before was i, I think like a, a 2010 study um knackers ross and perry uh, were the authors on this and essentially they had a six-month intervention study set up where they had counseled people on an exercise program, some uh, behavior change, and then put them on set dietary recommendations with the aim of people losing about half a kilo a week or about a pound per week. And that was the kind of the way they set the recommendations. Then what they did was after the first month of that six month study, they looked at how much people had lost in the first month and then broke down the group of people into three separate groups slow, moderate, and fast based on how quickly that individual was losing weight based on their recommendations. So I think it was something like a, uh, the slow group was if they'd lost less than, say, 0.25 kilos per, per week. Moderate was between 0.25 and I think like 0.7 kilos. And then if it was more than 0.7 kilos a week, they were in the, the fast group. So they then looked at, at the end of the six months uh, what had happened. And those kind of trends had continued in terms of slow, moderate, and fast. And when they looked at it, I think like the slow um, weight loss group over the six months had lost about five kilos, which is is, is not too bad. It's definitely going to benefit them and, and help their health. But the fast group had lost over 13 kilos in that same six months. So this was, again, comparing someone who had lost weight a lot quicker they lost 14 kilos instead of five after that six months period. And then the thing was, well, sure, they can do that when they go really fast for the six months, but what happens when the intervention is over? So what they had is after that uh, point, they had another year where there was uh, not a um, strict intervention like during those six months, but they had what they call an extended care program where they were able to give advice and people were able to check in uh, with the researchers. And so one year after the end of that six months, so 18 months after the initial start, you did see some degree of weight regain, but that happened in all three groups. They all gained a bit back about, I think it was about a kilo and a half on average uh, in each of the groups, but there was no significant difference between how much they regained. So even 18 months after the start of that trial and at 12 months after the end of the uh, intervention itself, the group that had lost the weight fast initially had still lost a lot more. So I think they were at like 11 kilos. They were down even at that 18 month mark, whereas the slow group was about four kilos. And so we see that 
there might be some re, 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 weight regain, but that happens regardless. And it, it doesn't seem that, at least in this study, that more would happen just based on how fast you lost it in the first place. So, of course, I think we need to take into account that they're mechanistically, it could set someone up depending on how long they diet. If someone diets very aggressively on very low calories for a long period of time and then comes off the back of that with no plan of what to do and just says, I'm going to return to normal eating, sure, because of changes in uh, certain hormones and the degree of restriction they've had and the behavior component to having a very restrictive diet, they may set themselves up to gain weight back fast. But with any degree of a, a plan to transition them back to a more sustainable approach to eating, it doesn't make sense to me that it automatically means you're going to regain weight just because you lost it faster in the first place. The other component then is if we're talking about faster rates of weight loss and more aggressive diets, we should be dieting for shorter periods of time. So if you diet slowly for 12 weeks, maybe you can get that same dieting done in six weeks more aggressively, right? So we shouldn't be comparing fast versus slow for the same set period of time. So I think there's at least good reason to question the idea that people are going to uh, just regain all that weight if they diet um, with a larger deficit or lose weight a bit faster. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And from a practical perspective, there's lots of things we can do to prevent that from happening in terms of how we transition from that dieting phase back to a more sustainable maintenance phase. And, and working on that, we should be able to pretty much mitigate most of those issues, I think. Yeah, it's a really, really good point that you, you made there about the importance of being able to transition away from an aggressive phase out into another phase. And obviously people are so different in how they approach this. When you hear people regaining the weight massively, it all comes into context. What was they doing to actually lose the weight in the first place? And obviously how we would prescribe a calorie deficit to people, albeit aggressive, we would do it in much different ways than what other people unfortunately do like some people can go on like eating an apple a day or eating some celery you know and with us and how we approach it it will be completely different so i suppose we have to take into consideration how we actually set up an individual diet to set up this aggressive calorie deficit for the individual that's worth taking into consideration isn't it Right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. We're not necessarily saying you just need to eat as little as humanly possible. What we're probably talking about is if a very mild or slight calorie deficit we deem is, let's say, 15% uh, below your maintenance intake, then if we have a deficit where you're at like 25%, that's a more aggressive diet than normal, and you're going to lose weight uh, fast than normal, but you can still fill your diet with plenty of decent quality food, lots of uh, protein. You can eat an amount that you can still recover from your training sessions and still not feel like you just feel terrible all the time. You want to mitigate a lot of those downsides that can come. Um, so it just means more aggressive than we conventionally say of, oh, you need to be very, very gradual with this. So there's lots of room to maneuver within that. And we are also going to try and stick to the main uh, core components of good quality nutrition at the same time we're not just saying just don't eat any food if you can yeah there's there's so many ways to kind of do it isn't it and that's why we push people to have like you said before more protein within the diet make sure there's still resistance training and without going down into a rabbit hole of information but even talking about energy density of foods and food volume and how people can you're talking about satiety that's a completely 
different topic in itself, but they're things that people neglect really when they do come to dieting down the, the they miss the point of making sure they're having adequate amounts of protein. So that's how these things that we've mentioned before, muscle loss, weight regain, can really become problematic for them because they've not taken into consideration ticking the other boxes which are important when it comes down to not only taking an aggressive caloric deficit, but making sure that all these other boxes are ticked to make life easier. Absolutely. And, and that's why it's at the top that just knowing the extent of someone's calorie deficit doesn't really tell us much about how they're going to respond and particularly how they're going to feel because we could have two people drop their calories by the same amount or diet on certain low calories, but there's lots of things we can do to make one of them suck a bit less than the other, right? In terms of the foods we pick, we're going to try and have ones that have a lot of food volume that can at least try and fill us up, plenty of protein and fiber, um, have again, a, a good amount of that coming from minimally processed foods rather than just lots of calorie-dense hyperpalatable foods, which uh, is probably going to be not so nice when we have very little calories to play around with. So there's lots of things we can do from a practical perspective to make the diet not feel as bad as it otherwise would or not be as hungry on a certain diet or to be able to stick to it a bit easier that tie into both um, how things like satiety and palatability impact us, but also psychologically and making decisions around food and what meals we decide to include and the variety in those. Those things can make a practical difference uh, during dieting phases. And that's why a, a competent coach to guide someone through that is often very helpful um, because it's not about telling someone eat this many calories or, or eat this amount of carbohydrate. There's a lot of useful practical strategies that can get us through the actual dieting phase. Just while we're on that topic, Danny, I think it'd be good to ask you when, in terms of say, if you get a client that uh, comes to yourself and they've got um, habits of well, poor food behaviors for many years, they lead very much a junk food diet as such, and you want to put them in a caloric deficit. What I've found in the past, obviously, when, when you completely change somebody's nutrition in terms of where it leads to some degree of friction because you've gone from a junk food diet to what we perceive as these clean foods, which obviously I don't like using that term, but going to that extent, how do you create this aggressive calorie deficit with somebody like that without changing too much that they can't actually adhere to the diet? Like, if there's like a happy medium with what you do, if, if that kind of makes sense. Absolutely. And I think it's yeah, trying to stay away from information overload, trying to address too many things at the one time and so on. But in that particular case, we're actually usually in a very good position because um, we don't really even need to talk about calories a lot of time to be able to place someone in a calorie deficit if they're coming with, let's say, very poor nutrition lifestyle habits off the bat. And it's probably a good time for me to make clear to people when I said at the outset that for embarking on a fat loss diet requires a calorie deficit. What I want to be clear on is that doesn't mean that everyone should be counting calories or tracking calories and macros. That can be useful for some people, but it's not a requirement in order to be in a calorie deficit. Any diet that is leading to someone losing body fat over time is it by nature that person is in a calorie deficit, but there's many methods to do that without even mentioning the word calorie. So in the case that you mentioned, let's say someone has really poor diet that most of their diet is just processed junk foods for lack of a better term and let's say they don't really exercise that much and their sleep is pretty uh, crappy then in that position yeah we don't even need to mention the words calories or macronutrients in that case if i can 
generally just improve their food quality a bit. So it's getting more to minimally processed foods, just a bit less of those uh, processed foods, maybe cutting out things like uh, sugar sweetened beverages, um, and they're getting a bit more vegetables and some lean protein in there. That in of itself is likely to lead to them eating less calories, right? Because their satiety has gone up. They're not eating these very hyper palatable foods. And so without even tracking or thinking about calories, they'll probably eat less from just those better food uh, um, quality choices. On top of that, then, if we improve things like sleep, if someone has is sleep restricted, we know that puts them in a position where their hunger levels are going to be higher throughout the day, even without realizing it. So fixing someone's sleep can dramatically impact how much they're likely to consume. If someone is very inactive, again, this can have a knock-on effect of both how many calories they expend, but also can impact their ability to match up an appropriate amount of calories to how much expenditure they have, which doesn't seem to happen in people who are very sedentary. So in that particular position, we're in a good place where we should focus on core, simple habits of how do we gradually improve this person's nutrition quality? How do we look at things like general lifestyle and sleep? And most of the time, you're probably going to see that person is probably going to end up eating less calories without even thinking about it because of those changes in food quality and satiety and so on. And that's why a lot of people can see improved body composition just from trying to eat a bit healthier rather than even worrying about tracking calories straight off the bat. So um, that's, that's a good point. And I, I think, um, yeah, I want to make it clear that when we talk about calorie deficits are acquired, that's different from saying tracking calories and macros is required. They're, they're two separate um, points that I think are important for people to be aware of. Yeah, definitely. That's why a lot of people tend to think that they're actually eating more, but they're actually eating less calories. But they'll they'll say, "Oh, I'm eating more now," but right. the in terms mean that they're having more food volume, but for less calories. Exactly. Yeah, you can have bigger meals. You can feel like you're eating lots more food, and you actually are. The volume of food and the amount of food that you are eating is a lot more, but the calorie content of it is lower. So, yeah, that's uh, that's exactly the reason. Yeah. Just touching upon um, the aggressive diets again, uh, Danny, there's um, a lot of work looked into the adherence and I know that I have definitely experienced it myself and I'm sure a lot of other trainers have in yourself as well, is when clients do lose a fast amount of weight, what that can do for their adherence and get that buy-in for them to keep going because going back to this slow and sustainable like we spoke of, which we're saying is not a bad thing, but when a lot of people come to us and they are overweight and they're only losing a slow amount of weight loss that can potentially derail them and faster weight loss can sometimes create better adherence for better results long-term as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is certainly the case for uh, some people just have a, a preference for it either through their personality type or what they're looking for initially that they would not mind actually having a bit more of a restrictive diet initially if they saw those faster results um, immediately. And so this particularly is the case, let's say if someone is a, a new client that you're working with or someone who has a considerable amount of weight to lose, it's a very unappealing idea to a lot of people to say, hey, we're going to go really slow and steady and the maximum I want you to lose is about a pound a week and we're going to have to do this for X many months. Um, so one way beyond that is you can start with a short phase of more aggressive dieting 
because particularly at the start of a dieting phase, someone's motivation is higher at that time point, right? When you just are about to embark on a diet, you say, right, I'm going to sort this. I want to lose this amount. And their motivation is very high. That is a, a time where you can use that motivation to your advantage to use a more aggressive phase, get a faster rate of weight loss in those first couple of weeks. Someone then is now bought into the process and say, hey, this is, this is great. I, I've done what my, my coach has said. It's all working out uh, fine. I've started to see some visible changes when I'm happy with. Um, I've seen some improvements in health. It's been easier to be able to now go and exercise. All these things tie in together. Now they've got some immediate return on the effort they've put in. Now they also believe in what you're saying and the strategies that you said you were going to use. And now you're at a point where you can sit down and say, okay, this is awesome. This has worked really well. Now, in order to continue with this progress, we need to switch to maybe a more moderate rate of weight loss, or we might even need to go through a phase of a few weeks where we don't have any weight loss. We're going to purposely aim for you to try and keep your weight the same, maintain your weight for a few weeks. We're going to bring back up your calories, kind of reverse some of the negative things that happen when we're in a calorie deficit for too long, and then we're going to go back into another diet phase. And then they're probably going to be more likely to say, okay, I, I trust what this person is doing because they've got that early success. And so I think periodic phases of sharper decreases in weight followed by, let's say, a maintenance period where your calories are back up and then another drop in weight may be more useful than just trying to continue with a diet for a long period of time. And there's some studies that would kind of seem to indicate this. We have uh, first the whole area of literature that looks at intermittent dieting versus continuous dieting. Uh, so this would be where uh, they had um, people diet for like two weeks uh, of a time, then a two-week break, and then two weeks and a two-week time seemed to get better results than someone who went through the full dieting period all in one go. Um, we also have other research. Uh, one particular interesting paper that I tend to talk about uh, was um, lead author on it was Leonie Heilbronn, who was recently on my podcast. It's a 2006 paper. And they did uh, four different groups. One was a control group. Then they had two groups that had a 25% calorie deficit. One of those was the deficit was solely from a 25% reduction in food intake. The other was a 12.5% decrease in calories from food and a 12.5% increase in increased energy expenditure from it exercise. And then the final group was what they call a low calorie diet until they'd lost 15% of their body weight. So this was a six month trial. So the other calorie restriction groups, so the 25% the deficit groups, they were, they had to try and do that diet for the full six months. That final group I mentioned, low calorie diet, they were only eating 900 calories a day. And they just had to do that until they'd lost 15% of their body weight. And then they brought their calories back up to a maintenance level just to maintain where they're at. And most of the people in that study reached that point at about 10 weeks into the study. So for the next 14 weeks, they were just maintaining their weight. And at the end of the six months, they were the group that had lost the most weight, even though they were essentially only dieting for 10 of those 24 weeks. So that gives me some um, optimism about the idea of, yes, you can go more aggressively for a shorter period of time and then use blocks of maintenance or non-dieting rather than someone having to try and diet all the time. I just don't think that's going to actually work all that effectively. And so I would definitely be more of the belief of, of breaking up dieting uh, with those blocks of maintenance or diet breaks, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I would even suggest people do that even if they don't go with an aggressive diet. Even if you go the gradual diet of 
lose half a kilo a week, do that for eight weeks or, or whatever, but then take a, a diet break or a period of maintenance, reverse some of those changes, get some more food back in, enjoy some more social interaction and social occasions and so on. And then after a while, go back into another block of dieting instead of saying, I'm just going to diet continuously until I've hit this magical number that I'll be happy with. Yeah, a lot of people want to lose weight fast, no matter how much we say to them that you don't need to constantly chase loss, chase loss. I think it's really good to mention that study you just spoke about then is basically what they did. They did the low calorie diet, lost a chunk of weight whilst everyone else was still dieting. They could, they put the calories back to maintenance. So essentially they were dieting for a lot less than what the others was. Is that, is that correct? Yes. And that's it. And, um, I, I, I think, for people who have a, especially if you have a lot of body fat you would like to lose and you're planning, okay, I can lose at this rate and I'm going to just stay doing this for the next six months. I just don't think that's a useful strategy. I would probably go against trying to diet for that length of time, regardless of, of what the calorie deficit is. And it's probably more likely that you'll find it beneficial to have a periodized structure to that. So by that, I mean a set number of weeks where you're going to be in a deficit and then you're going to have a set period of time where you're back up at maintenance. So you're not in a dieting phase. You have more calories coming in and just maintaining that weight. And then you can dip back into another phase of, of a calorie deficit. Uh, there's loads of different ways you can set that up. And you can probably do that based on your own schedule, preferences, and so on. And that also gives you the flexibility of being able to include like family holidays, right? Or being able to going away somewhere or just simply after a number of weeks of dieting, you're going to get tired of dieting. You're not going to feel good. You're going to be fatigued. You're going to be just sick of this restrictive diet. You can't have certain meals that you want to have. And so having periods of time where you can have those things and still not mess up your long-term success is useful. So I think including relatively frequent diet breaks um, can be useful for a lot of people. Yeah, I just thought we'll get into this now, Danny, whilst we're on this topic of the practical recommendations. And it'd be good to just go into how big of a deficit somebody can go on, you know, how aggressive, how long, um, and then go into kind of some strategies that you may have used with clients in the past, how people can set this up. Cause I really like the idea of short aggressive, uh, fat loss phases, you know, aggressive deficits. However, then taking into consideration, you, there's no way we can do this long-term, not just for a physiological standpoint from not going into too much detail about like metabolic adaptation and things like that, but more so from a psychological standpoint, because we don't want to have 16, 18, 24 weeks of dieting because it seems so far away. And that's what unfortunately a lot of people do. They, they're looking too far ahead rather than looking how you can get a lot of damage done short term, like in that study you just mentioned, get the weight off fast, quickly get back to a maintenance phase, which is will reduce any physiological adaptations that have occurred, but also psychological as well. So you're not losing your mind. So if we could just go into some practical recommendations on that, Danny, about how big of a deficit should people or could they go into? And how would you set that up with individuals? Obviously it's different depending on the size mm. of the individual. Yeah, sure. So obviously the first thing is looking at that individual's context. If we have someone who is a competitive athlete, then I think it's contraindicated to even go near very aggressive diets. So if we're trying to keep any uh, type of high level of performance and recovery from performance, and that's a priority for, for an athlete, then the more, the larger the calorie deficit and the less calories you have coming in, 
then the greater you're going to negatively impact your performance and your recovery. So for athletes, particularly if they're in season, it's just what we're going to try and avoid. Where you might use that is say an off season. So let's say you have a rugby player who has just came back from a holiday. The preseason isn't starting for another couple of weeks. So they're not back in training with the squad yet. Um, and they've gained a lot of body fat because they've just been away on a, a drinking holiday for the last two or three weeks. In that stage, maybe, yeah, you can use two or three weeks of an aggressive diet, get some of that body fat down so that when they get back into preseason, and this, especially when the season starts, they can have more calories in their system because they're not dieting. But apart from that, generally, really aggressive diets might not be the, the best for most, most cases, I would say, with athletes. For someone who's just doing it for body composition purposes, then they just need to be aware of the larger uh, the calorie deficit and the faster they're losing weight, that comes with a number of downsides. So how much you should decrease uh, your weight and, and how large the deficit should be should be based on people's personal tolerance for these various things. So one is just that obviously you're going to be able to eat less food and that is never enjoyable. That always sucks. It's going to be much more restrictive in terms of what foods you can have. So you can't go out if you're trying to keep on a very low calorie intake, you can't go to out for a meal and have whatever meal you want and whatever dessert you want each week, right? So it's going to be more restrictive in terms of food choice. We've already mentioned about how it impacts your performance in the gym. So you might need to accept a degree of decrease in performance sometimes. You probably need to moderate how much workload you're doing so your training volume and or intensity may need to change because you just won't be able to recover from the same amount you would when you have more calories coming in and some of those things will depend on um, how much body fat someone has to lose and also how long they've been say lifting weights if, if, if that's what we're talking about if you have a lot of body fat to lose and you're relatively new to lifting you can probably diet quite aggressively and still make progress from week to week if you've been lifting quite a while and you maybe have less body fat to lose, then you will see a noticeable decrease in uh, performance in the gym probably as you go through that aggressive uh, dieting period. So you just need to be aware of that and you maybe need to set up your training program to accommodate that. The other thing is then for some people, they would just hate the idea of having to be so restrictive and to diet on this little calories. Like it would genuinely drive them insane. And so obviously we wouldn't use that strategy for people who are like that. And I think I would also be against using this strategy depending on someone's um, history of, let's say, an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors um, or anything related to uh, psychology around food and the relationship with food. It might be contraindicated. We'd probably first work on building a solid relationship with food, food first. But based on all that, then if none of those things are deterrents for an individual and their only their their priority goal is let's say decreasing body fat and they're not as concerned with performance in the gym then really how large of a deficit or how low they drop their calories is based on how much can they stay taking in that they can still function as a normal human day to day they can still do the activity and exercise that they want to do without it being terrible and that they don't drive themselves insane so I think, I think when I was talking to Martin McDonald about this idea, he said something to the effect of basically the, the lowest amount of calories that you can diet on and, and still function and not go insane or something to that effect. And I think that probably shows us that there is probably a, a wide variation on how low you, you can drop it. 
Now, the problem with that is most people's first inclination is to think that they're the outlier. They're the person that can die on the lowest amount, right? So, oh, well, I'll, I'll be able, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, this type of idea. And they end up just cutting their calories down to almost nothing. I think there's a large number of, of downsides to that. You'll probably run into some of those negative issues a lot quicker, or you almost certainly will. So I would slowly work up to that. So um, the other thing is, as we've mentioned a couple of times, the larger you make your deficit, you need to scale the length or duration of your diet appropriately. So the larger your deficit, the shorter period of time you should be dieting for, right? So if you're in a very large deficit, um, let's say you're doing something like a protein sparing modified fast. So these can be diets of somewhere like a thousand calories ish, mainly from protein and relatively low in, in carbohydrate and fat. These types of strategies that are, are, are used, again, you probably want to use it for a very short period of time compared to, let's say, a diet where you're going quite fast, but let's say you're eating 2,000 calories, but you're still losing weight at like a kilo a week or something. You can do that for a bit longer. So there's no one answer of how fast you need to go and what is the best amount that you should set your, your calories at. Really, it's a matter of what you can tolerate, what your goals are, and what that person's actually able to stick to for long enough to get that result. But if someone has never really done it before and wants to try it, what I would probably suggest is first take your maintenance intake, drop it by like 25% and see how you do on that type of diet. Because that's a pretty uh, big calorie deficit to start off with if you're used to quite more moderate intakes. So go 25%. Uh, maybe 30% of a calorie deficit and see how you respond. Do that for a block of time. And if you got through that fine and you're like, hey, I actually really enjoyed this kind of more aggressive style of dieting, that last four or five weeks was actually pretty okay. Get yourself a diet break. And then the next time you want to do one, you can try a bit more if you wish. But as a general rule, if people are looking for a specific number, although I said that there's no one rule, probably to start off, I would say, yeah, aim for like a 25%-ish deficit, 25-30%, and that will give you a good idea of what a faster rate of weight loss type diet would feel like. Now, that's a good example, Danny. In terms of different people, say, um, say these people that I'm going to be speaking about now don't have any of the psychological issues around food, you know, they don't have existing eating disorders. Say you've got two individuals, you've got a obese individual and a, a leaner individual say overweight to morbidly obese is there any different kind of aggressiveness with the deficits that you'd use on them because we do know that obviously the more morbidly obese individual would require more calories they'd have a higher calorie maintenance than the overweight client however you want to get more body fat off the morbid obese client for health reasons would you mm. go very aggressive with the individual who's morbidly obese as to what you would do with the obese client, albeit that they can tolerate more calories being of a bigger stature. So really in that case, at the start, I don't even think about we need this specific degree of a calorie deficit. We would look at, okay, where are, is their starting point? What are they currently doing with their nutrition? What does their diet look like right now? Where's the place that we can make change immediately? And what is it likely they're going to be able to stick to? And what recommendations can I give that they're actually going to be able to adhere to? There's no point in me coming up with this optimal rate of, of fat loss that isn't just 
necessarily going to work. So the biggest thing, like I said, a lot of the time in those cases, we can see things quite obvious that are going on that we can change. We don't even need to really counsel about calories immediately. And we know there's going to be a reduction in their, in their caloric intake through those behaviors and the food changes we make. And then if, if there's weight loss occurring, great, we'll keep writing that out. And then if there's a time comes where we need to start looking at that, we can do. Uh, but generally, that isn't uh, necessarily a, a port of call. Beyond that, there's no real big difference there. Again, it would come down to the tolerability that that individual has to this set deficit. So if they tolerate dieting more aggressively and we can push them a bit more, then great, we'll do that. If we know or it seems that that's not going to be useful for this person and it's making the diet unbearable, then of course that's not a good idea. Let's go uh, a bit more focused on building good habits over time. And if any weight loss is occurring, then great, right? Or even beyond that, even if there's certain periods of times where there's not weight loss occurring, we can still say, great, we're building better health habits here and in the long run we can get to where we want so i would be um i would caution against overly focusing on let's go for this set amount of calories for this individual when there's lots of general food-based diet-based lifestyle-based recommendations we can give that is likely going to take care of that for us anyway if that makes sense yeah, definitely. And I, I do say that to a lot of people myself, a lot of people that have a lot to change, I actually say to them, that's an actual good thing. But they'll take it so negatively themselves, they'll come in, they'll say, I have a really high junk food diet, you know, I don't exercise, I don't walk much, I sleep really bad. And I actually turn around to them and say, you're going to get the most room for improvement when we start changing these things. So if anything, you're going to get the better results than someone who's got less to change. Right. And uh, there's a number of examples that I can give at this. A couple that I usually talk about, um, My one of our coaches at Sigma Nutrition, uh, Gar, he had a coaching client before who had a, a significant amount of weight that he wanted to lose. And generally when he was reporting his typical diet, it, it seemed pretty okay. And after drilling down into his his daily routine, what he was doing, um, Gar was able to find out the, the the client was having six large coffees from Starbucks per day. He, he had one of his employees, this guy was a tattoo artist, would go down and, and get these coffees. And but when he looked into it, they were having like these large coffees filled with lots of cream and sugar, large size. They were like four or five hundred calories ish per coffee, and he's having six of these across the day. So the only intervention they made to start was Gar said, hey, is there any chance you might want to try something like an Americano maybe? And uh, the guy was like, yeah, actually I would prefer that. I just end up getting these because that's what the other guys are having. So for a number of weeks, that was the only change they made. And he was losing a considerable amount of weight because as you can see, there's thousands of calories taken out of his daily intake, but from that one change. So we don't need to worry about what was his overall intake? What degree of deficit are we talking about? We know, hey, we've just took out a considerable number, thousands of calories and X amount of uh, uh, sugar and fat that's going into his diet just through this one change. So I think that can be incredibly powerful. And that also means that you have more stuff in your back pocket for when that stops working, right? Then you can start to change the other stuff instead of trying to do it all at once. Um, another nutritionist friend of mine I was talking to the other day, he was working with actually a family uh, before, and he noticed that one of the members of the family would routinely drink two liters of Coca-Cola every day. And so immediately, like if we can just change this for any non-caloric beverage, look at how much 
calories and sugar is immediately coming out of that diet. So again, there's, there's very powerful changes that can happen through uh, simple changes that, um, yeah, people shouldn't dismiss too easily. Yeah, simple changes that can elicit quite an aggressive deficit for somebody. Like you said, exactly. with a coffee, pulling out 500 calories a day from coffee is aggressive, but it's very simple. Right. And um, so that's, and that was the whole point I was making earlier, that we can, when we talk about the necessity of a calorie deficit, doesn't mean we need to necessarily have everyone tracking calories or everyone needs to know every day what they're consuming. It's we need to make certain changes that will allow you to be uh, losing body fat over time if that is your goal yeah it's a really really good strategy and that's something that i'm gonna get eric helms on soon talking about his default diet it's a really good way of doing that coming away from tracking and just looking at your current diet that you have now and you can make a aggressive change to your current diet you have now without going into specific macronutrients and calorie counting using my fitness power you can just aggressively change up your current diet to see such big effects can't you yeah, absolutely. And I love uh, Eric's concept of, of that default diet and it works so well. And it's a perfect example that will probably tie into our conversation uh, and some of what we said earlier about transitioning from a aggressive diet into a more sustainable dieting approach over time. Doesn't mean a complete overhaul, but as Eric will, will probably outline is you have this kind of skeleton that you'll have during that aggressive phase. And then you just do similar types of habits during the other phases, but you just have more food uh, built in, more food choices, more flexibility, uh, more calories and so on. So there's ways to move in. Yeah, you can have like your same diet spread over three different things depending on what you're trying to achieve. You can have your aggressive deficit day diet, which looks very similar to your day at maintenance or even to your day when you're trying to put on some weight. Exactly, exactly. Just before we wrap this one up, Danny, and um, I know it's getting quite late. Going off what we spoke about, aggressive deficits and things like that, could we just touch upon some strategies in terms of the aggressiveness of a deficit? We've always spoke about going into an aggressive deficit, then to a maintenance, so whether it's two weeks aggressive, one week maintenance, and some strategies that you may have used with clients. I know you've mentioned about some fasting protocols. I think I listened to your podcast the other day with that with the lady who talks about the different fasting protocols that she uses i think that'd be a good place to wrap this one up in terms of a practical standpoint what people can use instead of just thinking that they need to always be in a caloric restriction for long periods of time and we know people can run into these barriers when they do that so we want to just try and give them the best bang for buck what they could use within their lifestyle yeah, so one that I am very optimistic about and that has some really good literature behind it where we can see improvements both in health and body composition and, again, even outside of trying to think about specific calories or even types of, of food choices is time-restricted feeding. And time-restricted feeding essentially is just about fitting our meals within a certain number of hours across the day. So we have a set start and end time for when we're going to be consuming and then the rest of the time it's a, it's a fasting window so what we see is what is typical for most people in the population seems to be around a feeding window of between 15 and 16 hours of the day so people are getting up in the morning having some sort of caloric intake relatively soon after waking 
will eat throughout the day and will probably consume all the way until late into the evening, even close to when they're going to bed. So like I say, up to 15, 16 hours is relatively typical. What we seem to see with time-restricted feeding is if we shorten that feeding window to 12 hours, to 10 hours, to eight hours, that we see improvements in health, both from a, a metabolic standpoint. So that would include things like blood glucose, how high our blood glucose goes and stays after meals, for example, as well as changes in body composition, how many calories people are eating just from shrinking that window. And so again, this is another example of if you are aiming to try and look at a nutrition strategy that will take care of your calories for you without you having to track them, one useful strategy for a lot of people is a time-restricted feeding model where you say, okay, I'm going to have my first meal at, let's say you have it at 8 uh, a.m. And you can start by saying, I'm going to make sure that I don't eat after 8 p.m. So I have a 12-hour feeding window. Now, if your usual feeding window is like 15, 16 hours and you eat late into the evening, you can, you're immediately probably going to cut out some snacking. You're also going to probably see some of those metabolic health uh, impacts from that window. Now, what we don't know yet from the human studies is, is there an optimal feeding window? Is, is 12 hours better than 10? Is 10 better than 12? Is 8 better than 10? Is 9 better than 11? Or any of these types of combinations. But it does seem that restricting it in some way is beneficial. So if you've never done it before, maybe start by having some sort of 12-hour window, which is not that difficult to do, right? Like I said, like it could be 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., right? Or it could be um, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. You could try a shorter window if that suits you better. Eight hours is a lot of the studies will have looked at an eight or a nine hour time restricted feeding window. And so there are benefits potentially to be had. Uh, and this gets into a lot of the research around our circadian rhythms. But just to, the, for simplicity's sake, it might be a useful strategy. And w the reason why I like it is because it doesn't require you to go all that depth and you have to learn all these things there's all these things you have to remember it's simply just having a set feeding window where you know what time your last meal of the day is going to be and you just don't eat after that and so that can be a useful strategy for a lot of people so if the idea of having to, to track intake isn't appealing to a lot of people i would I, I would be very optimistic about time restricted feeding and say start like if you want to be um go in very like just dip your toe in say i'm gonna try a 12 hour window or a 10 hour window if you want to try a bit more then great go for an eight or nine hour feeding window um and uh, see how that uh, works out for you so I, I would i would suggest people could could try that and if it's not for them it's not for them but if they they like it that could be quite useful it's a good strategy isn't it when you hear a lot of people well people usually do anyway eat most of the meals later in the day because they're preoccupied in the day it's when they get home they kind of let the floodgates open so it's a good strategy to look into isn't it yeah for sure and that's one of the reasons i like it that from a practical sense uh, i know particularly myself uh, that usually a lot of our issue with over uh, consuming isn't necessarily that we have just these huge massive uh, meals at lunch and dinner per se but it's that we can top up quite a high snacking frequency and like you say a lot of that can be done late in the evening um, and it also seems that our metabolism of meals is different late in the day than it is earlier so if you eat the exact same meal at, let's say 10 o'clock at night 
versus 10 o'clock in the morning, your metabolism of that meal is different. So it have, if it has carbohydrates in it, your blood glucose goes up higher and or stays higher for longer if you have it at 10 p.m. at night versus the exact same meal early in the day. So our metabolism of meals is slightly different from a metabolic health standpoint. And that potentially, what we're still trying to work out from research, could have direct implications for um, body composition because it could change how much energy you expend across the day. And there are a number of trials um, looking at this right now. I know there's a, a group in Surrey and there's a group in Aberdeen who are involved in doing some of this work. So that is quite exciting. But purely even without that, from a practical standpoint, it might be a useful way for people to keep um, their meals in, squeezed into a time in the day where they're better able to digest and metabolize those meals, which is trying to avoid eating very late at night. And also you're cutting out the opportunities to continue snacking because you've this set cutoff time in the evening. So yeah, I think it has a lot of promise for people and it's an easy or it's a simple, I shouldn't say easy, it's a simple um, type of approach to have because you don't need to remember all these various different rules about specific foods, just simply eat your kind of usual diet, but you have this feeding window and then see how you get on with that. What are your thoughts, Danny, on the other kind of fasting protocols? I know that's time-restricted feeding, but like alternate day fasting or even intermittent caloric restriction, like the 5-2 diet and things like that that people do. What are your thoughts on that for um, fat loss, not, not just short-term, but long-term as well to keep people adherent? Mm. So, yeah, I think like you say, it comes down to adherence to this certain protocol because it seems that if you were to match those dieting strategies with non-intermittent fasting diet strategies that have the same amount of calories and macronutrients in them, the same degree of activity, it seems likely that you will get the same result, or at least that's where most of the literature would point to right now. Like I said, though, there is some interesting stuff with time-restricted feeding, which is the same as like daily intermittent fasting, where it's possible you could see a, a difference in energy expenditure and therefore maybe a difference in fat loss. But we're still certainly not there of, of, of being definite on that. So I think it comes down to preference. If someone likes to use an intermittent fasting strategy and they find that suits them and that allows them to eat the types of foods and the amount of foods that is working towards their goals and a fasting setup works for them, great. If not, then there's lots of ways you can set up your diet where you're not using a fasting protocol and you can still make progress. So it's very much based on what the individual wants uh, themselves and what their preferences are. But again, fasting can have some of those same um, benefits. So for example, you mentioned alternate day fasting or a 5-2 diet. They might be suited to, let's say, an individual who doesn't mind certain days of very restrictive eating, but doesn't like being in a slight deficit continually for long periods of time. So with a 5-2 diet, if you have two days a week where you're fasting, and then the other days you're not in a deficit at all, you're just eating your normal maintenance amount of food, you could essentially be putting yourself in a calorie deficit for the week, so for those seven days, but you're only really dieting for two. So that's one way to do it presuming that on the, let's say the five days you're not fasting, you, you're not overcompensating um, for the fasting days, which actually most of the research seems to suggest a lot of people don't uh, overcompensate for them, hence the benefit that you get from some of the, the fasting in, in a 5-2 model, um, although that's not for every individual. So 
I think there can be some benefits, but again, I think it comes down to the individual knowing what their preference is and seeing what works for them, knowing that it's not necessarily magical. It's just another way of structuring your diet that you may or may not have a preference for. If you don't like it, don't worry. There's lots of ways you can set up and get just uh, as good a result. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I, th- I think what I've kind of found with the whole time-restricted feeding and things like that is really good for people who do live a really hectic lifestyle where in the day they're constantly on the go so much so that you can limit their feeding windows because they're just in meetings or, or on train journeys or on calls they can kind of do that and it works very well with their lifestyle but for somebody who's completely active say like myself who's a personal trainer it it becomes problematic because i get hungry quite earlier in the day just because of the fact that i move around a lot so it is very individualized to what approach you take for your calorie deficit exactly and that's what it is it's just knowing uh the preferences and context of of the person because there's no one diet that everyone needs to follow um so like any of these that i've said would be you i wouldn't use it with any of the mma athletes i'm using because they're training two three times a day and so saying hey you're only going to eat in this short eight hour window might not be the best strategy for them when they're already struggling to eat enough food or they've got a late night training session that we need to refuel afterwards so just understanding what your goals are with your diet and then fitting your your preferences around that is is the way to go awesome well danny i think we've covered a hell of a lot um i've kept you for quite a long time we've obviously covered calorie deficits and aggressive deficits the the good and the negatives and positives from them and how people can hopefully set them up i hope this has given a lot of people a good insight and you broke it down fantastically well just before we wrap it up would you like to just tell the listeners where they can find you because i'll definitely lead them to your podcast because like i say i learned from it myself and i'm sure a lot of people will do too yeah, sure. So probably the best way is just to go over to sigmanutrition.com. So S-I-G-M-A nutrition.com. Uh, everything is linked up there. More about me, what services we offer, etc. cetera. Uh, if they want to listen to the podcast, then just search for Sigma Nutrition Radio on any podcast app or on Spotify. And then if they want to find me on social media, on Instagram, my handle is Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. Um, they can find me on Twitter, um, Nutrition Danny, or they can just also find me on Facebook as well. So any of those places or via email, which you can get on the uh, website, you can contact me and I'm happy to take any questions or feedback. So yeah, any of those places is good. Thank you very much, Danny. And hopefully we'll speak again soon because I'm sure I could get you on covering a vast amount of topics. Yeah, for sure, man. I'd be, be happy to and uh, I've already enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Fat Fix podcast and I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.